Scripture lesson this morning, Exodus chapter 13, verses 1 through 16. And Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Sanctify to me every firstborn, what breaks open every womb among the children of Israel, among man and among beast, it is mine. And Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of bondage. For by strength of hand Yahweh brought you out from this place. And no unleavened thing shall be eaten. This day you go forth in the month Abib. And it shall be when Yahweh shall bring you into the land of the Canaanite, and the Hittite, and the Amorite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, that you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and in the seventh day shall be a feast to Yahweh. Unleavened bread shall be eaten throughout the seven days, and no leavened thing shall be seen with you, nor shall there be leaven seen with you in all your borders. And you shall tell your son in that day, saying, It is because of that which Yahweh did for me when I came forth out of Egypt. And it shall be for a sign to you upon your hand and for a memorial between your eyes, that the law of Yahweh may be in your mouth, for with a strong hand has Yahweh brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this ordinance in its season from year to year. And it shall be when Yahweh shall bring you into the land of the Canaanite, as he swore to you and to your fathers, and shall give it to you, that you shall pass over to Yahweh what breaks open the womb, and every firstling that is dropped of a beast that is yours. The males shall be Yahweh's. And every firstling of an ass you shall redeem with a lamb. And if you will not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. And every firstborn of man among your sons shall you redeem. And it shall be when your son asks you in time to come, saying, What is this? That you shall say to him, By strength of hand, Yahweh brought us out from Egypt, from the house of bondage. And it came to pass, when Pharaoh would hardly let us go, that Yahweh slew every firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of man, even unto the firstborn of beast. Therefore I sacrifice to Yahweh whatever breaks open the womb, the males, and every firstborn of my sons I redeem. And it shall be for a sign upon your hand, and for frontlets between your eyes, for by strength of hand, Yahweh brought us forth out of Egypt. The word of the Lord. Be Let us pray. Father in heaven, we again give you thanks for your word. And we thank you that you have given us your spirit to direct us in the truth. And so we pray for his help now that we might see Christ more clearly. Indeed, that we would have light this day to understand your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As part of our anniversary celebration earlier this year, Deborah and I went to Madame Tussauds at Opry Mills, which, if you don't know, is a wax museum with realistic portrayals of famous people, and particularly musicians, which is fitting since Nashville is Music City. And the way the museum is set up is that you walk through and encounter various musicians with uh, these 
guitar pick shaped placards that provide uh, brief bits of biographical information. Understandably, the museum leans toward, uh, more toward country music, but you find different genres in different parts of the museum and samples of hit songs or music uh, plays at various points. Well, when we got to uh, the Motown section of the museum, uh, the Diana Ross song from 1980, I'm Coming Out, was playing. It's a catchy song, and those of you who know it can probably hear it in your head right now. I'm not going to try to sing it. It, but, and it's basically about um, self-actualization, conveying such things as the time has come for me to break out of my shell or I've got to show the world all that I want to be and all my abilities. There's so much more to me. And of course, part of the related lyrics in the song, I'm coming out, I want the world to know. Funnily enough, in the comments on one website, a woman related... I kid you not, this song played on the radio when my hubby and I were driving to the hospital and I was in labor with my oldest son. We laughed our butts off in between contractions. Well, you might be wondering what this particular Diana Ross song has to do with Exodus 13, which is fair. Uh, But underlying the instructions that are imparted here is the theme of Israel's coming out, going out, being brought out of Egypt. Seven times the same verb is used in various tenses, uh, which does cause it to get a bit obscured when translated into English. But but it's good for us to to know this, for us to have this awareness, since it can help us understand more fully what's going on in the text. According to some, chapter 12 and verse 51 acts as a transition verse between chapters 12 and 13, some even arguing it belongs more with 13 than 12. And it was on that very day, Yahweh caused to go out the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt according to their hosts. If we include 1251, then that adds an eighth instance of this verb being used. But what we find in the first 16 verses of chapter 13 is also similar to, um, to so much of the text we considered last week. You'll recall that the 10th plague and actual exodus almost seem to receive less attention than the stipulations for who is allowed to keep the Passover and how it is to be kept. As if there's more concern for establishing Israel's liturgical life than for giving some of the the nitty-gritty details we might prefer. And that general demeanor in the text continues with what we read about here, with the consecration of the firstborn and the feast of unleavened bread. Well, we might rightly wonder what some of this can possibly have to do with us and our faith and who we are as the church, but trust that connections, the symbolism and implications of the text will become clear as we make our way through. So verses 1 and 2, And Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Consecrate to me all firstborn, firstlings of every womb among the sons of Israel, both of men and cattle, to me he is. So Yahweh makes a statement to Moses and nothing else is said. No details are given by Yahweh to Moses. Just this statement that all firstborn, uh, literally those who first open a womb, man or beast, are to be consecrated, sanctified, holy, set apart to Yahweh. More specifically, firstborn males are in view. So for firstborn for a husband and wife as a daughter, she wouldn't be set apart in this fashion. Another passage of Scripture that helps to shed a little bit of light on what's going on here is Numbers 3.13, where Yahweh instructs instructs Moses, For all the firstborn are mine. On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I consecrated for my own all the firstborn in Israel, 
both of man and of beast. They shall be mine. I am Yahweh. Now, this sets up an interesting contrast of firstborns, which we'll expound upon later. But in Numbers, there's a clear contrast of the firstborn of Egypt who were killed and the firstborn of Israel who were consecrated. So we have this instruction from Yahweh to Moses in verses 1 and 2. But then in verses 3 to 16, the instruction is from Moses to Israel, beginning in verses 3 and 4. And Moses said to the people, Remember this day which you came out of Egypt from the house of slaves. For by strength of hand Yahweh caused you to to come out, to go out from this place, and was not eaten the leaven. This day you are coming out in the month of Abib. And verse 3, two times this verb, verb for coming out, going out, is used, and then another time in verse 4. Also two times there's specific mention of this day, which contextually appears to refer to the exodus, the, the departure, the going out from Egypt, the house of slaves. And that imagery, house of slaves, begins to create a subtle contrast because the sons of Israel are moving from slavery to freedom. But as the text is clear to indicate, that, that freedom isn't an absolute freedom, but is a freedom that's governed by God's law, by His Word. Israel has been freed to serve Yahweh, even as the text goes on to indicate, and as Pharaoh admitted in his defeat in chapter 12. Moses is also clear to say that it's by strength of hand, of Yahweh's hand, that Israel has been delivered, which connects with the clear Exodus theme that Israel didn't save themselves, but it was Yahweh who fought for them and delivered them. You know, they, they walked out of Egypt with the spoils of war in the silver golden garments, but didn't engage in any conflict to, uh, to get them. No, it was Yahweh who caused them to find favor in the eyes of the Egyptians, and all Israel had to do was ask for these items, and they were readily given. We also notice the mention of not eating any leaven, which becomes part of the celebration of the Exodus, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. As one scholar helpfully observes, the Feast of Unleavened Bread commemorates the act of leaving the land of Egypt as compared to the Passover, which is tied more closely to the death of the Egyptian firstborn. So the month when they went out was the month of Abib, what was considered the first month of the Israelite calendar, later called Nisan. And apparently Abib means a young, ripened ear of grain, indicating spring, a time of year for new life, for new birth, and generally the time when livestock uh, bear their young. Now the rest of our text this morning seems to divide neatly into two sections, verses 5 through 10 and verses 11 to 16 addressing different subjects, but paralleling one another after a fashion. Verse 5. And it will be when Yahweh brings you into the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give to you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall serve the service, this one, in this month. Now, a few things to note. First, there are present, future, and past perspectives that are conveyed. You know, the present is Moses speaking to them. The future is they're being brought into the land of Canaan. And the past is the promise to their fathers. But be sure to note that they're, that they're all connected. How it testifies to God's promises to his people and his faithfulness to those promises. Second, five nations or peoples are mentioned. Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Other lists um, mention more or less. But here it's five, a number symbolizing power. Uh, but there'll be no match for Israel with Yahweh fighting for them. 
Third, Moses is calling the people to worship, to serve the service, which he goes on to further expound in verses 6 through 10 regarding the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Verses 6 through 8. Seven days you shall not eat unleavened, and on the seventh... Seven days you shall eat unleavened, and on the seventh day a feast to Yahweh. Unleavened shall be eaten for seven of the days, and shall not be seen to you leaven in all your territory. And you shall tell your son in that day, saying, On account of this Yahweh did for me when I came out of Egypt. There in verse 8 is another use of that uh, that word, came out or went out. Uh, past tense in English is go. Um, and we're familiar with the, the seven days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, having heard instructions for it in the previous chapter. The admonition here adds that leaven won't even be seen in their territory. As a bit of an aside, this word territory or country is used a few times before, uh, once in relation to the second plague of the frogs, and then three times in relation to the plague of the locusts. So whatever comprises the territory of the Israelites, leaven isn't even to be seen. Uh, you recall the admonition that leaven was to be removed from their houses. Uh, this may go further still, but, it, but if it's not even to be seen, then perhaps there's even this out-of-sight, out-of-mind principle of sorts uh, being conveyed. But then also notice there's a clear recounting of the works of Yahweh that's to take place. And in this instance, the son doesn't ask, but the father initiates the instruction. And part of the implication is that the son is participating in this feast and that he participates as if he was one who came out of Egypt and is celebrating what Yahweh did for him. But it's not just an as if, but it's a reality, a covenantal reality. You know, a son who isn't born until a future time when Israel is established in the land bears the benefits of the exodus of Israel being brought out of Egypt by Yahweh. That son was not born back in Egypt, but through God's grace is born in the promised land and has the great benefit and blessing of not being born in the house of slaves, but in the land flowing with milk and honey. So the departure from Egypt is celebrated. And what does that indicate? Well, going from the old world and into the new, going from death to life, going from bondage to freedom. But what is the condition of that freedom? self Restraint. How do we know this? Because they're celebrating the feast of unleavened bread. You know, for a week, no leaven, no sourdough bread. You know, just seven days of self-control of not eating any leaven. And then things are back to, to normal. But again, there's, there's not to be a transporting of Egypt's leaven, of Egypt's ideas, teaching, and religion. Leaven is related to growth. Uh, but Jesus teaches us that it also has to do with, with teaching and ideas. But you, you don't want Egypt growing in Israel. So that's to be left behind. And when you stop and think about it, this is, uh, this is similar to the arrangement for Adam and Eve in the garden. You know, they had the freedom to, to eat from all the trees of the garden, including the tree of life, except they had to show restraint and not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That one tree was off limits. Of course, what happened? Well, they didn't exercise self-restraint. And they lost their freedom. Again, the condition of liberty is self-restraint. Verses 9 and 10. And it will be to you a sign unto your hand and a memorial between your eyes in order that it may be a law of Yahweh in your mouth 
For with a strong hand he has caused you to come out of Egypt. And you shall keep the statute, this one, according to the appointed time from year to year. In verse 9, we hear again that all-important verb, uh, come out or go out. And we also hear again of Yahweh's strong hand. But in verse 9, notice the mention of a sign unto your hand and the memorial between your eyes and the law of Yahweh in your mouth. What's that all about? You know, is Moses promoting an actual sign? Are the Israelites supposed to get a tattoo on their hand to help them remember? You know, or wear something such a hat as a hat or a band that is kind of always in their vision? No, that's not what this is advocating. The sign to them is the feast that they're to celebrate. So what, is the, what does the hand relate to in Scripture? Well, it relates to, to power, um, but also to doing. You work with your hands. Hands are equated with action. And so their lives were to be lived in the reality conveyed in the feast. Their actions were to be dictated by it. What are eyes in the Bible? Well, for one thing, they're organs of judgment. And so a memorial between the eyes would indicate that they're viewing the world properly. That they're, uh, and so they're viewing the world properly through the realities conveyed in the feast. And then the third element, that it may be a law of Yahweh in your mouth. What does that indicate? Well, that they'd have the right confession, that they'd speak the truth according to God's law, that their words would be governed by it, even as it relates to the realities conveyed by the feast. And the feast, this yearly worship service that was to be kept, had plenty of application as it was to govern their hands, eyes, and mouths, that they'd been granted freedom from Egypt unto service to Yahweh, and that their lives were to reflect this reality. Well, that brings us to the second section in verses uh, 11 to 16. And notice how it begins. And it will be when Yahweh causes you to go into the land of the Canaanites as he swore to you and to your fathers, and he will give it to you. So the promise of the land is reiterated, and this time only the Canaanites are mentioned. Though they're often used to, uh, to repre- as representative for all the other tribes. Verse 12. And you shall pass over all the firstborn to Yahweh and all the firstborn offspring of cattle, which are your males, to Yahweh. Now, immediately you're hearing perhaps some different wording than what you may be reading in your Bible, but the text makes use of the same verb, pass over, that's used in chapter 12 and verses 12 and 23, when the Lord passes over the land of Egypt. And, of course, the text is indicating that the Israelites are to pass over their firstborn males to Yahweh. And so part of the connotation is one of dedication or giving them over. But certainly we're to make the literary connection between the Passover language that's used and the Passover itself and the language that's used in the previous chapter. Again, firstborn sons of men and cattle are in view and they're clearly to be to Yahweh. They are to belong to Him. So keep that Passover language and imagery in mind and then let's listen to what's next in verse 13. And every firstborn of the donkey you shall redeem with one of a flock. And if you do not redeem, you shall break its neck. And every firstborn man in your sons you shall redeem. Now the one of a flock language uh, takes us back to the early verses of chapter 12 and the freedom the Israelites had to choose a lamb or goat for their Passover meal. It's the same wording here. But what's the deal with these donkeys? 
Well, donkeys were unclean animals, but they were also useful and became the transportation for royalty later in Israel's history. So they're not just dumb old donkeys, but they need to be redeemed or ransomed. We find similar language and more detail in Numbers 18 and verse 15 and following, but there's this but, but there's the practice, the practical aspect of not wanting to kill a firstborn donkey. And so the Israelites would have been much more likely to sacrifice a sheep or goat on its behalf. And as the last part of the verse states, every firstborn son had to be redeemed. Now, how that's done isn't specifically detailed here. But as we later find out, these sons were redeemed. They were ransomed with five shekels of silver according to the shekel of the sanctuary. Again, no mention of that here at this point. But then, what do we read next? And it will be when your, sons ask, when your son asks in time to come, saying, What is this? And you will say to him, By strength of hand, Yahweh caused us to come out of the land of Egypt from the house of slaves. And it was for when he caused Pharaoh to be stubborn and to send us out. And Yahweh killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from firstborn of man unto firstborn of cattle. And thus I sacrifice to Yahweh all firstborn of the womb, the males, and all firstborn of my sons I redeem. Now here's, here's where the theology of the text more profoundly emerges and where we're supposed to piece some things together and appreciate what's going on here, particularly from a literary perspective as well. First of all, we need to go all the way back to Exodus chapter 4 when Yahweh instructs Moses, And you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says Yahweh, My son, my firstborn, is Israel. And I say, Send out my son, and he will serve me. And if you refuse to send him, behold, I will slay your son, your firstborn. So Israel is Yahweh's firstborn son. Second, how is it that Israel survived the Passover night? Why wasn't Israel, why wasn't Yahweh's firstborn son slain? Well, because he was redeemed through the blood of one from the flock, a representative son, the blood of the Passover lamb upon the doorposts and the lintel. But then think about what happens the next day. Israel is caused to go out. They they come out through what? Through a bloody doorway, which is a picture of new birth. You know, even natural birth in, involves passing from the darkness of the womb through a bloody doorway and into the light, into the new world. Well, that's the picture here. And so the subsequent passing over, the dedication of the firstborn sons, acts as a reminder of the Passover and the Exodus. Yahweh's redeeming his son Israel from Egypt. And the later remembrance and practice of the, this redemption, of this ransom, will involve paying the five shekels of silver, as noted earlier. What's the first of the spoils of Egypt for which the Israelites ask the Egyptians? Silver. Maybe there's a subtle connection here as well. Apparently silver was considered as valuable as gold at this point in history. So the dedication of the firstborn males is hardly an insignificant event. And what purpose did it serve? Verse 16. And it shall be to you a sign unto your hand and bands between your eyes. In strength of hand, he caused us to come out, Yahweh, from Egypt. Similar language to verse 9. And similarly applies to direct the actions of their faith and how they see and judge the world. 
and the redemption that belongs to the later generations as well. Well, what are some points we can further expand upon or what are some further implications of the text for us this morning? Well, consider again that there's no such thing as absolute freedom, that true freedom has parameters as defined by God's word, and that a fundamental condition of freedom is self-restraint, is self-control. You know, we have to be able to govern ourselves, to have self-discipline. And that being true, then we see all the more the importance of cultivating this in our children at an early age and why parents disciplining their children in a biblical fashion is given priority and also why it takes so much work. I remember uh, years ago in an edition of Credenda Agenda magazine, um, in, the, in the child training section, I believe it was Nancy Wilson, she wrote a, a brief article. And as I recall, she made the point to the effect that a spoiled child, particularly a spoiled son, will likely later take liberties with his girlfriend because he thinks he's entitled, because he's used to getting what he wants. And therein lies another important principle for parents to keep in mind. You know, that the sins uh, that expresses itself in your children, say, when they're two or three years old, what might like that look like when, say, they're a teenager? You know, if your daughter is allowed to be disrespectful in her responses when she's little, and that goes unchecked, undisciplined, when she gets older and gets to the logic and rhetoric stages of her life in those teenage years, then where you're going to have the responses of a typical teenager uh, portrayed in TVs and movies and not a young woman demonstrating the biblical virtue of self-control. Or coming at it from another angle, spoiled children don't have self-restraint and ultimately aren't free. And really neither are their parents. Rather, they're beholden to the children and that's backwards from what the scriptures teach us. And of course, this principle of self-restraint applies not only to children, but also to adults and older children who are reaching adulthood. You know, think, think of it this way. Just because you can do something, just because you're now old enough to do something, whatever it may be, doesn't necessarily mean that you should. Now, as a Christian, as a baptized believer, what should govern your thinking? What should direct you in your decision-making? God's Word. God's law, God's instructions for your life, which are what? True freedom. And we find this kind of biblical logic every bit as much in the New Testament as in the Old. Consider Paul's argument to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6, where he primar primarily is addressing sexual immorality, but the line of argumentation can have wider application. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now, as a believer, you are what? Well, you're not your own. Why not? Well, because you've been bought with a price. What price? Christ's crucifixion on the cross. Therefore, what? Glorify God in your body. And there's no disembodied Gnosticism here. The Bible's theology is quite earthy. Or consider the argument that Paul makes in Romans 6. And as you listen to uh, a couple of sections here, have, have Exodus themes um, in your mind as you hear it, because Paul does when he's writing it. The chapter begins, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can he who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, 
in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So you've been baptized. You received the sign that you belong to Jesus, that the blood of Christ, the Passover lamb, has been shed for you, and that you're no longer under the power of death. It has passed over, and you've been brought through that blood into new life. And what does Paul go on to argue a little bit later in the same chapter? Again, have the Exodus in mind. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. And recall the, the power struggle between Pharaoh and Yahweh over to whom Israel belonged. Were they Pharaoh's slaves or Yahweh's? Yahweh won. So Israel goes in the wilderness to serve Yahweh. Likewise, Christ Jesus is one. He who gave himself as a ransom for all, for all kinds of people, as those whom he has redeemed, as those whom he has delivered from the bondage of sin and death. And then we go forward in our service, not only in worship, but in our lives, live unto him in the pursuit of righteousness. Peter also employs Exodus theology as he writes in his first letter. Therefore, preparing your minds for action... And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. See, Peter's calling them to live in a certain, in a certain way in light of their salvation in Christ. And what's it mean to be holy? To be set apart, to be consecrated. The apostle continues. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. See, you've been ransomed, you've been redeemed. And so that automatically means that you pursue the life, the new life to be lived in accordance with God's word. And unto this life, we too have been given signs, haven't we? That should direct our actions, that should govern how we view the world, as well as the confession that we make and the speech that comes from our lips. Baptism means that we're accepted, and our baptized children are also accepted. And we instruct them in the realities of the redemption that is theirs, not only when they ask, but even actively telling them what is true of them and who they are on account of Christ. And we are all consecrated unto the Lord. We are all like the firstborn who were set apart. And why? Well, because of Christ, the Passover lamb, the son of the herd, on account of whose blood we have acceptance. Still more, we have the weekly sign of the Lord's Supper, which further confirms these realities, even as Jesus himself is the new covenant meal in the bread and wine. We eat and drink very bodily actions, Reminding us not only of Christ's own incarnation, taking on flesh and blood, but which also affirm, affirms to us that we work out our salvation, that our faith is to find expression 
in what we say and do and even how we view the world. You know, if you think the world is going to hell in a handbasket, then the logical conclusion is that you might as well not do much while you're here and just hunker down until you die. On the other hand, if you believe, as you should, that Jesus is the King to whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been given, then there's a myriad of ways for your faith to find expression in this world that's been turned right side up by the work of Christ, which is to be reflected in your life lived unto Him in obedience to His Word and for His glory. For the better part of 2,000 years, the church, Christians, are those, those coming out, going out in the new creation, the new life on this side of the earth, uh, on this side of the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And we want the world to know the truth of this good news of redemption. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for your word again, and we thank you for the life that we have in Christ, for the signs that you have given to us. Indeed, may our faith be more fully directed in the truth, the truth of your word. Impress it evermore upon our hearts. May it bear fruit in our lives to your glory and for the building up of your church and for the growing of the kingdom, of your kingdom, to the ends of the earth. We humbly ask in Jesus' name. Amen.